Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good afternoon. This is a joy for me to be with Aaron and Beth on the day that they've come to the church to join their lives lives together in holy matrimony. This is so beautiful, so awesome. It was so amazing processing in with all the brother priests this uh, mini chrism mass we have going on today. I think we'll renew our priestly promises after you do your, is that, I don't know. All right. Uh, but it is so awesome for us to be with you both as you, uh, you come here to lay down your lives for each other. This is so, so, so beautiful. One of the things I was praying about when I was thinking about this day for you both was how today is the fruit of the Father's faithfulness, right? The fruit of the Father's faithfulness. We have a God who keeps his promises. We have a God who hears and knows our heart's desires and who orders our lives in many mysterious ways and so sweetly to bring us about to places that we could never have imagined, but so far exceed what we could ever have hoped for or dreamt. You know, like the winding road of providence. It's amazing how all those years of longing for this day, all those years of longing for this day, pining for this day, the Lord in his providence had already placed you two on this collision course of you know, like one day you're going to show up in each other's worlds, then one day you're there on each other's horizons, and you make such an impact in each other's hearts, and that would bring you here, like to St. Charles, to lay down your lives just like Jesus, to, to come to Calvary, right? That's what this is. That's what we do every time we come to Mass, to enter into Jesus' own self-surrender, his own self-offering for his beloved. You've come here... Because there's nothing left to give each other except the whole of yourself, right? You've given time, you've given little gifts, you've given, you know, attention and focus, you've given all of that, but it's like, there's nothing more that I can give you except the rest of my life, the rest of my future, and I've come to do that, right? You're placing the gravitational center of your heart in another person. It's so amazing, so beautiful, so good. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, all right, I'm going to dial back in. I want to dig into the scriptures that they chose for this Mass today because these are not the typical scriptures you hear at nuptial weddings. Brother Priest, you know, we do a lot of weddings, and uh, these are not the typical readings that show up in the little nuptial wedding book. So the, the, the menu of readings that you can pick, but you guys aren't the typical couple, right? So here we go. I want to talk about, uh, for this homily for your wedding here, I want to talk about this word covenant that we hear in that first reading from the prophet Jeremiah, the promise of a new covenant. I want to talk about the salvation of your souls. Big topic, but why not? It's your wedding, right? I want to talk about the salvation of your souls. That line, it's the last line we hear in that second reading from First Peter. And I want to talk about the Eucharist, the bread of life, which we heard Jesus preaching about in John 6, the bread of life discourse And why it's just so, it's most appropriate, perhaps, to hear about and contemplate the Eucharist at a wedding. So those are the three things. That's the roadmap for where we're going. Sound good? Give me some of this. Good. Thanks for participating. Okay. So this word covenant, okay, it's a biblical word. It's a churchy word. We hear this word all the time mentioned in the scriptures. We hear it mentioned in the prayers of the Mass. What does it mean? What does this word mean? Well, covenant in the ancient Jewish world, in the world of ancient Israel, the word covenant in Jesus' day was a sacred pact uh, in which God was invoked that brought about uh, the bonding of uh, people to bring about new kin, new family. 
It was a sacred oath that invoked God's name. It, it eventually became synonymous with marriage, the word covenant. It's a very powerful word, right? Covenant is different than contract. Uh, it's different than contract, although a lot of our uh, brothers and sisters, separated brothers and sisters, other Christians, they have this synonymous idea, contract, covenant. They're very different. Contract is an exchange of property, right? It says, this is yours and that is mine, right? I give you this money, you give me this cell phone service. That's a contract. Covenant, though, is an exchange of persons. It's an exchange of persons. It doesn't say, this is yours and that is mine. It says, I am yours and you are mine. It's a bonding of people. And covenant became the means by which God began his rescue mission with humanity, his rescue mission with Israel, with all of humanity, beginning after that fateful day in the garden, all the way back in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, seduced by the enemy, grasped at the fruit, ate the fruit, and sundered the relationship that they had with the Lord. Humanity was always meant to stand in this posture of perfect openness, perfect receptivity and docility to the, like, the Niagara Falls of God's inrush of grace and beauty and goodness. We were always supposed to be in this childlike open posture. And what happened was in that grasping at the fruit, we cut ourselves off from that. And so God, instead of washing his hands of us, he came in earnestness and urgency and mercy to, to restore this relationship. And he was going to do it by giving covenants, by offering a way to bond humanity back to divinity. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is. You've got God offering the covenant with Noah and his family, but they break it. Then he offers the covenant through Abram and the tribe, but they break it. Then it comes through Moses and the 12 tribes, and they can't keep it. Then David and the kingdom, and it's not kept. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this almost quality, and then it falls apart. It breaks down. God's upholding his end of the bargain. He's upholding his end of the relationship, but humanity crumbles to bits what you see happening in the prophets all throughout the Old Testament, you see this, this growing hunger, this growing desire for a new covenant, like one that wouldn't be broken, a bond that would be so tight that we couldn't screw it up. <laughs> that was the hope. And so you hear in Jeremiah this dream, a new covenant in which humanity's unfaithfulness would be overcome, that somehow God would bind us together. Because God wasn't just simply interested in us as creatures. This is the astounding revelation of Scripture. This is the astounding like, good news at the heart of the gospel, that God is not merely interested in us as creatures. He looks at us as his beloved. That's what you see in these covenants. like The covenant on Sinai, it has all this character of a, like, of a wedding it was the great wedding between Yahweh and his people. It was nuptial, it was spousal, it was marital. Which is why the prophets all throughout the Old Testament, when they're railing against Israel for their idolatry, they're calling them out for infidelity, for adultery, for being unfaithful to their Lord. And so you have these prophets dreaming for this day. And then one day, through the workings of providence, Scripture calls this day the fullness of time. God sends his angel to bend the knee before a young girl in Nazareth. Much like every groom comes to bend the knee before his betrothed, his bride-to-be. Right? Gabriel comes to Mary and proposes a question. And she opens herself so fully, so completely, that she literally conceives 
divinity in her immaculate womb. It's why the church fathers called Mary's womb the mystical bridal chamber where heaven and earth are wedded together. Right? That marriage that we've been, t- I've been talking about, this relationship between God and humanity that was together in the beginning, that was ripped apart through sin, is brought together in Jesus' person, in her womb, like in his very person. Jesus is the coming together of heaven and earth. He's not part God, part man. He's not Superman. He is true God and true man, as we say in the Creed every Sunday. His first miracle, his first miracle, of all the things he could have chosen, was at a wedding feast. What a coincidence. No, it wasn't a coincidence. Of all the things he could have done, he does the role of the bridegroom, right? Jesus, that's who he is. He's the bridegroom. The church is his bride, and he's come to unite the two together. Where? And when did he do this? Right there. Right there. On the cross. In that bloody moment of abject suffering. He's in the throes of agony. And we have the audacity to call that Friday Good Friday. Because it wasn't just a murder. It was the self-offering of God's heart. It was a wedding. I've come to lay down my life. The earliest Christians, they saw that day as the fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant. He came to the cross like you two have come to the church today to lay down your lives for the beloved. That's why we get married in Catholic churches. That's why you're getting married with an altar here and a cross in the background. In the Old Testament... Altars were places of death. If you were like a goat being escorted to an altar, you're not going to live much longer. You're about to be sacrificed. You're coming to a place of death. You've come here to stand in front of an altar with the cross in the background to lay down your lives, to, to be yourself no more, to arise as something new, to be wedded Again, that's also why over the cross, right here in traditional churches, you have this structure called a baldacchino. What is this? This is, this is symbolic of, or it's a, it's a representation of the chuppah that, was, that would be over a Jewish um, wedding ceremony where the bride and groom would stand o- underneath this, this tent structure. Because underneath the baldacchino, underneath the chuppah, is where spousal mysteries happen. It's where nuptial love unfolds. It's where bridegrooms and brides come to lay down their lives. And that happens whether or not there's a bride or bridegroom in the wedding here, right? Every single mass, something from heaven comes to earth and these two realities are joined on this altar right beneath the baldacchino. And this brings us to the second point from the first reading, uh, for the, from the second reading from First Peter that you've come here today, like this day is like, yes, all the eyes are on you, right? The cameras are pointed at you, everyone's just adoring you both. But this is not about just you entering into and just having your special day. That's not what this is, and I know you know that. You've come here to enter into his marriage, right? That's a question that, I don't know which priest is doing your vows, but it doesn't matter. Someone's, okay, Father Carlin's doing it. He's going to ask you this question, have you come here to enter into The covenant of matrimony. I have. You've come to enter into a reality that preceded you. You're entering into his marriage. For what purpose? This is what Peter says. For the salvation of your souls. 
That's why you're doing this. Marriage is going to have an effect on you. It's going to do something to you, not just make you happy. And many days it won't make you happy. They're laughing because they know, right? Because that's not the point. It's to make you holy. Happiness is the side effect. Holiness is the principal object. It's the focus. You're here to, to enter into what he did. Because this is going to demand all of you. There's so much still selfishness and pride and ego and hiding that your heart still carries. And so God's saying, I'm calling you to this, not because you're perfect, but because you're not yet perfect. There's still too much you in you. So I'm giving you another person. I'm lashing you to this other person so that you have someone very concrete in front of you who's going to demand your death every day. Who's going to be the living altar for you every single day. And how exquisitely beautiful is that? It's going to conform you and prepare you for heaven because you're not yet ready. You're not yet heavenly creatures Like if heaven is an aquatic environment, we have to grow gills in this life. It's going to help you grow gills. Right? You're not conformed yet perfectly to the Father's perfect agape. There's still too much you in you, so the Father's given you each other. You're like the perfect, the perfectly tailored sandpaper for each other to polish each other's souls. You're just what each other needs. The right balance of virtue and vice, glory, wheat and weeds. You're exactly what each other needs. And you'll notice in a moment when you say these vows, I don't know which form of the vows A or B you're taking, but both of them, both forms of the vows, they've both mentioned death or mortality. Right? The one says, until death do us part. The other says, all the days of my life. Like, that's right. Like, you're not getting out of this alive. <laughs> It's a fight to the death, as G.K. Chesterton said, marriage is. Because what you're pledging to each other, what you're saying is, I promise to be the one, I promise to be the one who will most help you get ready to die. I promise to be the one who will most help you get ready to meet him. Because this marriage that you're beginning today, it's just the appetizer to the wedding of the Lamb, where the bridegroom, the fulfillment of our heart's longings, the consummate delight of the saints, like, you're preparing each other to enter into that dance. So the way that you dance through this life, through the, all the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, it's going to be as if you'll hand the person off, your other one off, and he enters right into the dance. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. How? Because throughout the course of your lifetime, you're going to allow yourself to be taken by the Lord and blessed by the Lord and broken by the Lord and given by the Lord to become Eucharist unto each other. Again, that's why it's so perfect that we can contemplate the Eucharist on your wedding because as St. John Paul II said, he called the Eucharist the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Which is interesting because we have a sacrament where you have a bridegroom and a bride, namely matrimony. He said, no, 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 that's not the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. The Eucharist is. So what he's getting at, what he's saying is that the Eucharist's definitive meaning is found in relation to what St. Paul wrote about in his letter to the Ephesians. 
Ephesians chapter 5, where he describes the relationship between Jesus and the church. He calls it this great mystery that somehow beyond our comprehension, Christ's relationship to the church is like that of spouses. And what John Paul II is saying is that the Eucharist, the Eucharist, it is the bridegroom's gift to the bride at every Mass, every single Mass, daily Masses, Sunday Masses, every single Mass is a wedding because every Mass brings us to the upper room, it brings us to Calvary, it brings us to the throne room of God. In every single Mass, just like at this wedding, there's a bridegroom who's hiding in bread and wine who stands at the foot of the altar right here. Just like Aaron a moment ago is standing right there at the foot of the altar. And who walks down the aisle? The bride. To meet her bridegroom. Who in a moment will walk down this aisle to meet Jesus the bridegroom? Everyone raise your hand. The bride, the church, comes to meet her bridegroom. Every single mass. For what purpose? That the two would become one flesh. Friends, you've come here to enter into his covenant, into, into that story. Why? For the salvation of your souls, to say to each other Jesus' words that he uttered to his friends at that last supper where he said, this is my body given for you. This is my life. This is my future. This is my heart. This is my, these are my dreams. These are my fears. This is everything I have given to you. Friends, I pray that your marriage, more than anything above all, would just, it would be Eucharistic. Plain and simple, to the core. So if you are ready to hand over your lives to each other, I invite you forward now to be with Jesus who held on to nothing for his beloved. Amen.